Welcome to Civicus Voices. I'm your host, Artie Narsi. I'm an intersectional feminist and former journalist who has worked both with civil society and in civil society for around 10 years. So I'm really passionate about the power of protest and what it means to advocate for systemic change. And this right really needs to be protected even more so, particularly in the context where governments are failing to listen to people, where we're seeing this democratic backsliding globally, and also in the context of the growing anti-rights backlash. Civicus is working to protect this right. As a global alliance of civil society organizations and activists, it's dedicated to strengthening civil society throughout the world. On this podcast, we hear voices and stories from all corners of the globe on what it means to push for and advocate for change and for fundamental rights. I'm super excited about this third season, and we'll again be looking at the right to protest. Today, we'll kick it off by looking at what has been happening with the Freedom of Peaceful Assembly, aka the right to protest, around the world in the last year. We'll hear from an activist from Sri Lanka and get an update and the latest data from the Civicus Monitor staff. But before we get into this, I want to remind you about the basics. So freedom of peaceful assembly is an international and fundamental right, and it can manifest in different ways. It can take place in the form of solo hunger strikes to mass crowd mobilization, engaging in civil disobedience. People are even using art, music or dance to push back against government and demand change. Protests can be an incredibly powerful and successful tactic or tool to advocate for and defend crucial rights. This could include economic, social or political rights, for example. And because protesting can be so powerful, protecting this right is actually really crucial as it continues to be threatened year on year. So if we think about protests taking place across the world, for example, Economic problems in Sri Lanka prompted mass anti-government protests, which were met with excessive force. Protests are also taking place in repressive contexts, like in Central Asia, where state violence and the killing of protesters has become so normalized. We've also seen powerful women-led marches who have flooded the streets of Iran and used symbolic acts of defiance, for example, women cutting their hair to show defiance against the Iranian regime. And in countries once known as stable democracies, like the United Kingdom and France, protesters are facing significant crackdowns. The global protest tracker by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace found that since 2017, over 400 significant anti-government protests have taken place. And also, 23% of protests lasted for more than three months. And these are just the protests that are documented. So think about the ones that go undocumented or are not even represented in the headlines. Regardless of which right they're fighting for, protesters around the world have stood up and strong. And I could talk about this for hours as protests are manifesting as I speak in many parts of the globe. But let's get into the show. I'm speaking to Mariana Belalba Barreto, who leads the Civic Space Research Team at Civicus. 
This includes the Civicus Monitor, an online platform which tracks and rates civic space in 197 countries and territories. She has worked in human rights organizations for over a decade. Mariana, thank you so much for joining us. So to start us off, over the last year or so, what have been some of the broad trends that you've been documenting when it comes to protests? And what exactly would you say is fueling or driving people to take to the streets to protest? Civicus Monitor has been documenting an ongoing crackdown on the right to peaceful assembly for the past five years. Although it's very difficult to quantify the amount of protest that takes place uh, over a period of time. In 2022, we documented protests taking place in over 130 countries. I think it's very important to highlight that in most cases, when people take to the street to protest, it is already a last resource. They have already exhausted other channels to engage with the government. And we have been documenting three major drivers, economic, political, and human rights related issues. And of course, there is a little bit more nuance into what this means. In terms of the economic drivers of protests, specifically the work against Ukraine has been rising the cost of living. This means that fuel basic necessities have become a very hard to get for mostly excluded peoples, and this has led to mass protests from Ecuador, Niger, to Egypt. Thousands of protests have been documented across the world because of these issues. <clears throat> the second is political issues. It's a key driver of protests. Uh, abuse of power uh, makes people pay to the street to protest, whether it is against military juntas that have taken over after a coup, anti-coup protests, and we now have seen recent examples of uh, the anniversary of the coups in Myanmar and Sudan, where people again have been taken to the street to sort of relieve these issues and ask for accountability or transition to civilian rule. Last, the defense of human rights is also at the center of mass mobilization. This includes women human rights defenders or women that take to the street because of discrimination. The climate crisis has is a big and important driver of protests, especially from young people and indigenous people who are most affected by this. Now, Mariana, we know from the Civicus Monitor data that globally this right is under threat. Why would you say this is the case? We have been documenting several restrictions on the right to peaceful assembly. The number one restrictions that we have been documenting is that every time people go to the street to protest, they are being detained by security forces and the police. It has been the number one violation, or at least ranked as the top five violation documented by the Civicus Monitor over the past five years. But it's very important to highlight that restrictions on the right to peaceful assembly go beyond the specific moment where people take to the street. Governments and authorities start imposing restrictions even before people go out of their home. So even when they apply to permission, which is against international law, they're often denied. So that prevents the protest from taking place. Even when there is a notification 
regime, you don't need to ask permission to protest. This basically turned into a permission issue where governments just sort of use this as an excuse to prevent protests from taking place. Uh, the most extreme scenario is when government basically just ban protests taking place even over a certain period of time or in certain locations. During protests, uh, we have seen three main restrictions happening. As I mentioned before, the arbitrary detention of protesters is a common driver. In some cases, they are not even charged with any criminal provision, which sort of shows that this tactic is also induced intimidation. So people think twice in order to sort of take to the street again. Very common also is the use of excessive force by security officers, basically using tear gas against protesters. And lastly, and the most extreme scenario is the actual use of lethal force with the outcome of killing protesters. In terms of trends that you mentioned on the suppression of protests, can you give us any more details on when, where and to whom this is most likely to happen or who's commonly involved in these sort of incidences? Yeah, the restrictions to the right to protest are widespread, means that it happens in every region, regardless of the underlying level of restrictions or liberties they enjoy. Having said that, we do have data that shows that some restrictions are more common in certain regions than others. Use of excessive force during protests, for example, is very common in the Americas and Asia Pacific. The killing of protesters is very common in Africa and in the American, but it doesn't happen hardly at all in Europe. In terms of who is the target, there is an intersection between the SRSI of the right to peaceful assembly and structural discrimination. This means that women, LGBTQI plus people, indigenous people, black people, and migrants often face challenge or a specific challenge when it comes to participating on protests. Thank you so much for pointing out the intersectional lens in terms of the restrictions that are faced during protests. I think it's incredibly important to highlight how different groups take to the streets and how they are differently impacted by these restrictions. What would you say people involved in civil society and protests should know and should be aware of? I think for me, it's very important for activists and civil society organizations to be empowered by what they are allowed to do. I think more often than not, we see sort of a misunderstanding about this right. A few things very important to highlight. First, the right to peaceful assembly is a fundamental right. Second, everyone can enjoy this right. It doesn't matter if you are a citizen or a country, a non-citizen, if you are a migrant, if you are a refugee, if you are a stateless. We all have the right to take to the street and protest. You do not need permission from the authorities to protest. You can go out and take to the street. Even if there is a notification regime and you do not notify the authorities, the protest is still peaceful. A protest does not become violence because you didn't notify the authorities. You can wear a mask during protests. It's allowed under your right to privacy. You cannot be criminalized. There is no terrorist legislation or national security legislation that can be used against you. The police cannot stop and search you during a protest. 
very important. Just because a protest is disruptive or is civil disobedience doesn't make it less peaceful. It is a legitimate form of protest. And finally, we should ensure accountability for violations during protests. This is especially true for international organizations. More often than not, we see protest violation taking place and then time passes, and we sort of forget and go to the next emergency. It happened in Myanmar, happened in Iran. It's very important that we keep government accountable and that continue to support national organization, even when this protest is not in the spotlight or in the media. Thanks, Mariana, for highlighting you know the important information around the right to protest. I think Often, many people don't know that they have this right and this fundamental right is protected under international law. So I think it's really crucial that the people taking to the streets know their rights and to ensure that there is accountability towards the authorities who are often meeting these protests with restrictions. You touched on the use of protests as a last resort. We've seen protests all sorts of different types across the globe taking place. Would you say there are any positive trends or results I think this goes into the why governments are so fixated with restricting this right. And it is because it works. It might take time to just sort of achieve, but we have seen over time how when we have sustained mass protest movements, they will lead to change. We have a few examples. The prime minister of Sri Lanka actually resigned due to mass protest movements. We have other governments in Sudan, in Tunisia, who actually have stepped down because of protest movement. Uh, government have taken a step back into restricted policies because of protests. Lebanon, Colombia are just a few examples. They also put certain topics very visible, climate crisis, Black Lives Matters. All of these issues became spoken by people who were not related to because of mass protest movement. Black Lives Matters have made in the U.S. change government policies. There's still a lot to be done to sort of change a structural discrimination, but a step has been taken and they are extremely linked to people taking to the street to demand change. Mariana, thank you so much for joining us in Civicus Voices. That was Mariana Belalba Barreto, who leads the Civic Space research team at Civicus. And I just want to take a moment to zoom in on the power of protests and the resilience of movements. I often think when we monitor restrictions and we look at data, it really paints a worrying picture of global repressions. And that can be quite depressing, to be honest. But at the same time, we really need to keep reminding ourselves that protests work. They can lead to change, whether it is policy, accountability, and even changing attitudes. So we should equally focus on this resilience, especially in times where the fight may be long and enduring, and we might feel a sense of hopelessness. So now that we have an overview of what's happening, let's look at a specific example one which I referenced earlier in this episode. In Sri Lanka, there have been various protests for decades, with the country experiencing a tough few years. The economy has crashed, a state of emergency was declared, and people are facing food shortages, power blackouts and other struggles. This led to months of escalating protests 
and a political crisis after protesters overran government buildings and the president fled. And what came next under the new administration was a crackdown on dissent with security forces using excessive force against peaceful protesters. For more of an on-the-ground perspective, here is the story from Ruki Fernando. He has been involved in human rights for many years and has faced arrest, exile and threats. Ruki looks back and reflects on the massive protest movement over the last years. So I'm Ruki Fernando from Colombo in Sri Lanka. At the beginning, the trigger for the protest, the large people's protest, was about lack of fuel, electricity and lack of cooking gas. Uh, but these, although they fueled the protest, they triggered the protest, the protest started to demand much more. And in particular, key demand was the resignation of the president at that time. But actually not just the president, but the whole family of the president, because it was a family rule. In terms of the larger stated objective, it was achieved because the president at that time did resign. But I think the larger issues that demanded the resignation of the president still remains in terms of the ethnic conflict of Sri Lanka and the issues related to the war, issues related to the economic crisis. And so that is why there are always pockets of protest that's happening still in Sri Lanka, till today. Sri Lanka is a very plural, diverse country, and it is natural that protests by nature will also have diverse demands, diverse messages. So I think that is uh, something that we were not quite able to address in the protests that we had, particularly last year. No, I think there was a feeling among some protest leaders that this encompasses everything, everyone's grievances, but it was not the case. And that is why I think many people who were part of protest in the North and East for many years uh, did not feel comfortable in joining the protest. So I think that plurality and that diversity is something that we need to kind of watch out for, particularly in the case of large-scale protests. Something else is that last year's major protests in Sri Lanka were kind of without one particular leader. You know, there were people who gathered together in a particular public area uh, known as the golf phase next to the presidential secretariat. And over the days, over the weeks and even over the months, there were a group of people who started to meet, communicate online, and they became kind of leaders. And there were discussions among them about the future steps and the directions. But there was no one significant leader. Of course, there were several prominent personalities who were involved in the protest and they had some degree of leadership. So, but then in the end, I think they, it had its advantages and disadvantages. You know, in terms of taking clear positions and directions, it was very challenging. Uh, but I think it was also able to, the lack of one singular leader also made it possible for very diverse people to join in. There were people from very diverse ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, very diverse economic status. There were people who strongly believed in capitalism, people who strongly believed in more socialist form of uh, governance system, who were all part of that protest. There were people from different political parties and political sympathies who were part of that. It was mostly youthful, people in 20s and I think had a dominant role to play, particularly a student federation. But there were also older people involved in it. So it was also intergenerational. There were men and women in it. So it was very diverse and I think this diversity was also possible because there was no one leader. You know, so there was, I think, that uh, kind of a uncertainty about whether it's good to have one leader or not good to have one charismatic leader was felt. But then also when the president left, which was the main demand, I think the president basically appointed the proxy and that proxy is still ruling us. So maybe that is also because we were not ready as protesters with a very clear short-term temporary alternative. We had a very more clear or longer-term vision for our economy, for our you know, political system, etc. But I think in terms of the short term, we were not quite ready 
to fill the gap. So I think those are some of the thoughts that I have. And now, of course, the challenge is that the different people have kind of dispersed who were part of the massive protest last year. Some are even with the government right now. So it is challenging for us to get together again, like we were together last year. That was Ruki Fernando. And what struck me about what Ruki was saying is he highlighted the diversity of protest movements when it comes to making demands. I think that in this case, decentralized leadership in the protest movement really played a huge role in attracting inclusivity and diversity. And at times in massive movements, this is something that we see where if they are prominent leaders, for example, they may be over-dominating and as a result, other voices are silenced or excluded from being represented. But he also highlighted the challenges that protest movements may face in navigating demands. For example, if we're demanding immediate change in government, what happens after the government falls? What do people do next? Is the movement prepared for the long-term or middle-term demands that need to be made? And finally, the last part that really struck me was how he touched on protesters being co-opted at times to join political forces when they are promised a seat at the table to create change. And we've seen this in one or two movements happening where protesters decide to take on political leadership, but it doesn't always manifest and unfold in this way in practice. That's it for this episode. So on the show today, we painted a broad picture on the right to protest and set the global scene. And from what we heard, we know that this right is under threat. But we also touched on a crucial issue, which we will hear repeatedly throughout the season. Many people do not have the same access to this right of protest. And in particular, we see that excluded groups like women, LGBTQI plus people, migrants, ethnic and religious minorities and others who are at the intersections face restrictions on protests even more severely. For more info, you can have a look at the People Power Under Attack report from the Civicus Monitor team, which Mariana and her team put together and produced. You can also check out the Global Protest Tracker by Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is available online. You can find Civicus online and on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe, listen and rate the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you to all our guests today and to you for listening. Civicus Voices is produced by Alna Schitz, Jermaine Kricher and the Civicus team. My name is Artie Narsi and until next time, where we look at protests around LGBTQI plus rights in Africa. Goodbye.